So welcome back. This is very different. We have a year in review with Professor Janice Stein. So instead of a debrief, we have a pre-brief. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Amar. Hey, Sonia. So we've recorded our snapshot of 2022 with Janice. What you can expect in the next 40 minutes is essentially an understanding of what's happened in the past year, 2022. And the one thing that I've realized from what you're about to listen to is if there was a daily newsletter from Dr. Janice Stein, I would subscribe to it because (laughs) the world would just make so much more sense throughout the year instead of waiting for the end. Yes. Get ready for things to make sense. Elizabeth, what about you? I think at the end of the year, it's always nice to be able to pause and reflect on what's happened. And so I know the next 40 minutes is going to be a lot about large scale global issues, but I just like our listeners to kind of reflect on how this might actually affect you and the people around you, your friends, your family, and the things that you can do to just ensure that your community is moving forward safely into the new year. So for everybody who's listening, and closing the year that was 2022. Thanks for spending two seasons of Connected Intelligence with us. We are going to have our holiday special next week on December 22nd, and then we will be back for season three on January 5th. So in the meantime, grab a cup of tea, a hot chocolate, some marshmallows, and please enjoy Professor Janice Stein. Janice, it is great to see you. Welcome back. It is just great to be back with you, Sonia. So we'll start with probably the top of mind story for everybody in 2022, the situation between Russia and Ukraine. One story that has really stuck with me that illustrates the situation in Ukraine is a synagogue that turned its basement into a bomb shelter for all people looking for safety from air raids. How can we best understand what happened between Russia and Ukraine this year? And what was your reaction when you first heard the news? This is probably the story that most changed the year that we're just about to conclude, uh, because it shook up everybody's assumptions. And when that happens, people pivot and countries pivot in response. And what's so shocking about this story is that the biggest land power in Europe, Russia, which is also an Asian power, but it's European power, used force to violently uh, change Ukraine's borders unilaterally. That's something that has not happened in Europe really since 1939. And it has changed the assumptions of every single one of Europe's leaders. It's changed NATO's assumptions and it's rallied the United States and Canada uh, behind Ukraine. So this is not a 2022 story. It's a story for the rest of this decade till people really come to terms with it. What are the big consequences of this one? Any peace dividend is now gone and defense spending will go up um, all across the North Atlantic. That's a big one because when defense spending goes up, something else goes down. There is always trade-offs. Secondly, energy markets are completely reshaped. Russia was a critical supplier to countries in Europe, principally Germany, whose whole advanced industrial economy really was dependent on cheap Russian gas. 
that is over. Uh, the German economy is going to have to reorient itself. And the smaller economies are really struggling. Uh, that's the negative, the positive side of this. It has finally woken European leaders up that they need renewables. And that, and paradoxically, it's actually pushed forward uh, the energy transition. Food security, not so much in Europe, but Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine was always known as the breadbasket to the world. So Egypt, uh, large parts of Africa, uh, wheat is the, is the critical import because bread is subsidized um, in bread eating economies. And when the price, you know, a loaf of bread is sold at equivalent of one cent to Egyptians who are just above or around the poverty line and below. When that price goes up, it is so profoundly destabilizing of governments. And that's been the story in Africa the whole year. It is the struggle to adapt to the high price of food and not food as we in the rich world think about it, but the most basic staples that you need to feed your family. That's still an ongoing struggle. And then finally, the digitization of warfare. And we could spend a whole hour talking about that. We won't. Uh, but the Ukrainian army is fighting a war with a distributed model, which is really interesting. And it is adapting, innovating, learning, and combining digital technology, uh, adapting hardware to suit that the software that it's using. And it really is, um, it's a digitized war. So we could spend our whole time talking about that. I know you don't want to do that. The consequences of the war and the lessons we're going to learn from this war make it one of those seminal decades altering events. So one follow-up question on, you mentioned defense spending going up and you talked about the digitization of war. We spend so much of our days and lives online at this point. How has this affected the security and privacy considerations of the everyday person? Well, if you think about our online lives, we are all dependent on cyber networks. Every single one of us is dependent on secure networks. And Russia, Ukraine, each of them are at the same time as they're fighting the war on the ground that we're talking about and the war in the air that we're talking about, they're both fighting cyber war using cyber weapons. So the innovation that's occurring in cyber weapons, the innovation that's occurring, for instance, in the capacity to spy, <laughs> to hack your phones, the cloud is not, if it ever was secure, it is now, we know, insecure. The cloud has been hacked and cloud storage has been hacked. So I don't want your listeners um, to have their, their holidays spoiled, but go buy a hard drive backup that you could put on your desk if you're worried about the safety of your online life, frankly. One of the items you mentioned was energy transition that actually ties to another one of the big stories of the year. A new report found that sales of gas-powered cars are in permanent decline and likely peaked in 2017. Uh, so climate change, sustainability, there are many voices and thought leaders in this space, but there seem to be two distinct areas. One is on sort of the, the justice, social justice aspect of climate change, 
And one is on the technology adaptation and advancement of tools to manage the problems climate change is presenting to the world. How do you recommend our listeners think about this issue and digest the really broad variety of news around it? Yeah, you know, climate change is an issue that, as you just said, Sonia spans so many different vectors of action and so many different players who are contributing in one way or the other. Let's talk first about the social justice dimension. And that was fully on display at the at COP27, which is the big climate change conference in Egypt this year in Sharm el-Sheikh, because the blocker to any further action was the long-standing demand by countries from the global south that they be compensated because they are, at, especially countries in the southern part of the world, are at the forefront of climate change, rising seas, and they will be hit harder and faster than anybody else but the Arctic countries who are actually the leading edge um, of global warming. But they're not the they were not the ones who emitted massive amounts of emissions right. over time. It's in fact the industrialized, rich, developed world. And that's the, the, right there is the justice debate. Now, for the first time, and this topic has been on the agenda for 20 years, there was agreement uh, to set up a, a climate justice fund, frankly. Um, the notional target is $100 billion. It's unclear because the pledges are voluntary. It's unclear how exactly that's going to be met. But I think there is a breakthrough because for the first time, uh, the richer countries in the world said we have an obligation. Um, we who emit it <laughs> for the last 150 years of the Industrial Revolution, we have an obligation to compensate poorer island-facing, ocean-facing countries who can be swamped um, in the next 20 years if this goes badly. That's on the social justice front. On the technology front, it's really quite interesting. We got the first ever mildly optimistic report out of the International Energy Agency, who are not prone to be optimists. <laughs> That's not what they do on climate change, right? And the goal, as you all know, is to restrict warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But the catastrophic scenario was 5 degrees Celsius. And there were lots of models, climate models, over the last 20 years that said that's where we were going. Well, the IAEA for the first time said that worst one is off the table. We've already done enough. We're not going to get to the 1.5, but it looks more now like 2.5 than it does like 5. And I actually thought that was a very important message to give to people. Because if you're constantly saying in simple English, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed, People are not motivated to make much of an effort if everything we, we are going to do is not going to make any difference. So I thought this report came at the right time. It's taken the most catastrophic scenario off the table. The human species is going to survive now <laughs> on planet Earth. But they're saying we've got 15 years now to really, and this is a poor analogy, put our pedal to the metal on this. And that, <laughs> you can see why that doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it does not. Uh, but if we, we are making much faster progress on wind and solar than we could have imagined, big issues, how do we store it, right? 
That's the biggest one. How do we store wind and solar energy so that during the periods when there's no sun <laughs> and there's no wind, we can draw on that energy. And then that, that gets us into the space of batteries, safe battery recycling, you know, Everything. Yeah. safe storage. You know, you just talked about electric cars, which cars emit about 40% of the total emissions globally cars right so if we can switch the whole car sector and we're on we're on track yeah to electric um bat battery operated vehicles that would be huge but we have to build the charging stations <laughs> that's going to take energy we have to produce the electric batteries that's going to take energy so the cost i'm not sure everybody's fully factored in the cost of transition but we're at least finally moving after 40 years of talking about climate change. So I think that's a good news story for this last year. Tons of opportunities for innovation there. Tons, tons, tons. I mean, the the home heating, car, the coal automotive sector, which is, as you know, such a big sector in, in China's economy, in North America, in our economy, in Canada, the United States, will be unrecognizable in 10 years. So pivoting to... A familiar story for the past few years, COVID-19. COVID-19. The COVAX Global Vaccination Program reached a milestone of delivering its one billionth COVID-19 vaccine. That's the UN-backed uh, vaccine sharing program, yeah. making sure that there were doses going to the poorer nations around the world. The program reached this milestone after a shipment of 1.1 million vaccine doses that was delivered to Rwanda in January of 2022. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the, firstly, on the COVAX program in general? It was too little, too late, and we can't ever do this again, right? Um, there's a lot to learn from this. So I think one of the biggest things we have to learn, there's two big lessons, right? The capacity to manufacture vaccines has to be distributed, um, not concentrated. Yep. Once the scientists do the basic research, there has to be uh, licensing agreements which give special consideration to poor countries who don't pay the normal fees that Canada would pay, um, for, for example, so that and the manufacturing capacity has to be built. That's what I call an area where governments have to focus on building resilience in advance, that they can have a factory that can switch to vaccine manufacturing because I don't I, I don't believe this is our last pandemic. I don't believe that zoonotic diseases are going to be less common. I think they will be more as the climate warms and humans and animals come into closer contact with each other. So that what happened was that people in many southern countries got their first shot 18 months to two years after people in Canada did or the United States did. That's not viable because the, vac the, the virus mutates, which yeah. is, right? Uh, and that, I think, was completely missed. The second big lesson is that vaccines alone, supply is not enough. So in many of the countries where COVAX failed, it was, no, it was no longer a supply issue. The supply finally kicked in about 18 months into the pandemic. It was a delivery issue. The capacity in smaller countries with larger rural populations to deliver vaccines was not great. And when you say delivery, you mean the logistics on the ground, like setting up clinics, having the people to actually deliver them. Yeah. So it's not only it's not only clinics on the ground, as you know, it's the people, right? It's the human resources that are trained because you can deliver vaccines on a bicycle. 
frankly. If you, and you know, in, in the really in the countries that do well, um, that's what you do. People set out in the morning on their bicycles and they deliver vaccines on their routes. So, but the, those delivery mechanisms were just not in place. Take China as the most interesting case, which has the world's largest, oldest population. And when the pandemic hit, China made a decision to vaccinate workers first. And in order to explain it, um, used a story which has proven disastrous that older people would experience might are much more likely to experience severe side effects. To make a long story short, it wasn't supply and it wasn't even the sign of farm vaccine. That is an incorrect story that many people believe. What it was was a failure to deliver vaccinations to 55 and older Chinese who live in rural villages, many of them. And the infrastructure to do that is simply not there. If you have that kind of problem in China, just imagine the problems you have in some of the countries that are far poorer than China. So I think those investments have to be made now. COVAX has to, you know, the, the, the UN agency, which is COVAX simply was a stand-up for this. But Gavi, which runs this program, has to invest now in creating the delivery mechanisms and in doing the hard work with TRIPS, which is the, the trade agreement that governs what you pay for the licensing fees, right? And it has to establish a two-tier system. Needs to be variable. Needs to be variable. Those who can pay like us pay, and those who cannot afford to pay, pay a much reduced rate. And so when you first responded and said, too little, too late, I think just the juxtaposition of the billionth vaccine while also surpassing the six millionth death, how should we think of those two things together? Because there's a lot of folks that would say, you know, this would have been much more than six million deaths had we not had the vaccine. Way more, way more. I mean, in fact, it was it was almost, I think, miraculous. We've never done anything like this before in history to get a vaccine within this time. And the technology, the RMNA technology holds just huge promise. Pete, you know, scientists are talking about this now, cancer vaccines. Um, it's a platform technology in the innovation language. Uh, it offers huge promise. So I think we all have reason to be optimistic that if we get that kind of collaboration, we don't have to wait five years as we usually used to. Just think if COVID had run for five years before the first vaccine, we probably would have had 30 million deaths easily. But what's frustrating is that we got it. And when we got it, we didn't have enough supply and some countries mismanaged their vaccination program. Execution so important. Yeah, it is always. Pivoting completely to sports. Right. Um, in a historic agreement this year, you know where I'm going. Yes, I do know where you're going, Sonia. Um, I know how passionately you care about women's soccer and <laughs> rugby. Uh, so lead us into this story. Okay. Uh, the men's and women's soccer team in the United States will now be paid equally. So in 2016, for example, the women's game generated 1.9 million more in revenue than the men's game in the U.S. But from an article we referenced, women were paid a maximum of $4,900 a game versus the men's team player paid a maximum of $13,000 a game. And this you know group of, of, of women 
systematically went through the process of working with the governing body to talk about pay equity on both sides of, of the pitch. So you joined us for the very first episode of Connected Intelligence months ago now, and we talked about you being at Yale University in the first master's studies class that included women. So when you see news stories like this, do you find yourself reflecting on your time at Yale? How do you digest these news stories? No, I, it's actually the reverse. I think, what has taken so long? <laughs> How can we still have this story, right, at this stage and age? And it's not as if the television audience for men's soccer is greater than for women's soccer. You know, in our country, for example, Canada, we have just great women's hockey, right? And Canadians are just as likely to watch gold medal women's hockey as they are to watch gold medal men's anything. And so I, it's really difficult to understand why it has taken this long to break through, Sonia. And all I can say is I hope now that we have, it should, we shouldn't have to talk about it anymore. We should just level out now in all the other sports. This is just preposterous, frankly. That's all. <laughs> so we're running through the topics here. We're on inflation. Yeah. So it's been the word of 2022. Uh, you know, inflation has been in almost every article that you look at. Uh, so we're going to start from the basics for our listeners, for me, for, for folks that are listening. What is inflation? Why does it happen? And how is it having an impact on everyday people like us? So this is economics 101, right? <laughs> We're going to make this understandable to all our listeners. Inflation is higher prices for the same commodity. If you paid a dollar notionally for a loaf of bread, and a year later, you're paying $3, there is 200% inflation for that same loaf of bread. The loaf of bread did not get 200% bigger. <laughs> so it's higher prices for the same unit of a commodity. Now, what causes inflation? Here we're into terrible arguments that economists have. I think from a descriptive point of view, there's usually just two or three drivers of inflation. The inputs to make the bread cost more. So if the price of wheat goes up, right, as we as it has because there's a shortage of supply in the market, that's a supply side problem. And the price of a loaf of bread is going to go up. And probably every one of us has seen that over this last year as the Russian and Ukrainian supply of wheat was taken out of the global marketplace. So that's, there's, that's the supply shock. There's less supply of something you need to make that loaf of bread. An alternative cause of inflation might be that um, we get a report from the World Health Organization that eating two slices of bread a day is the single best thing you can do to prolong <laughs> life, right? It's, it's life-giving, it's healthy, and it should be whole wheat bread. Well, the demand for bread would go up. Um, and if it went up by 200%, <laughs> you would have, uh, a, and the supply didn't go up then because people weren't expecting that and the manufacturing capacity in the bread making plants wasn't good enough, you'd get an increase in the price of that. So inflation is always about the combination of supply and demand in the marketplace. But underneath that story, is a set of whys. Why do we get 
constriction of supply or increase of demand. And then it gets more and more complicated as we go out. I think many people want to explain inflation of the last year by the war in Ukraine, which is a supply shock uh, explanation. Or they want to explain it as a result of COVID and prolonged lockdowns in China, which supplies many manufacturing goods um, to the rest of the world. And as China shut down, prices went up. So you could see that's a supply problem too. But I think people are not paying attention to one big issue, which is an aging workforce globally. And if you think about that for a minute, as people age, they work less and the population pyramid gets inverted. So there are proportionally more older people and fewer younger people to support those older people. So as you have fewer people coming into the labor market, price of labor goes up (laughs) because there are fewer, but at the same time, you get reduced consumption because older people just spend less money than younger people. Your big spending years are buying houses, feeding and clothing your children, paying for education. Those are the big lumpy spending items. And as you get older, you don't do that anymore. So we're seeing a reshaping of demand and of supply at the same time. And that's what's gonna really shape labor markets over this next decade. And my sense is the big driver here is gonna be an aging workforce, less supply of labor, Will the demand side adjust quickly enough? I don't know. If it doesn't, inflation is a decade-long thing. And that's why the banks are in this fierce fight now to bring it down. We'll see. I was just going to say, so now tying that to central banks increasing their interest rates, that is all an effort to curb the inflationary activity. No, but let's just understand what it is, Sonia, and this is the problem. When they, when the central banks of Canada, United States, all across Europe, everywhere, frankly, raises interest rates, they are trying to curb demand. Right. That's all, right? And that's one half the story. So let's say they persuade me that because uh, things cost more, I'm going to buy less. That has nothing to do with the supply shocks that I talked about. Both need to be managed. Both need to be managed. But just think about this, central banks are national institutions. And even when they coordinate, they can't manage the supply shocks. So it's a real, and every central bank who's honest will tell you is a really blunt tool to manage a really complex, multi-factor problem. Now, based on the fact that you've likely seen many cycles of this in our world economy, what is your... Not one like this. Not one like this. And here's why not. World population is probably close to peaking. Right. We're at eight, that... 8 billion. Yeah. Now, China's population, probably in 2023, the curve will start to bend, right? We and as, a, as a race, with the exception of the Black Death and the... To a far lesser degree, the two world wars, when you add them together, probably killed 80 million people. But we've never had a period where population actually declines. Up till 1800, we had very slow growth, 1%, and then we exploded to get to where we are now. We've never had a period of population decline. So 
poor central bankers. I feel sorry for them. <laughs> they're in unchartered territory here because they're managing fundamentally a problem which has a new driver for which the economic models are not yet fully articulated. They have no experience with this. And so do you have any advice for our listeners that are just riding the waves of this story? At a time of inflation, if we take this down now to the individual, right? At a time of inflation, going into debt is not a wonderful idea <laughs> because the cost of paying, of paying that debt, right? Um, but you know what? Saving is not a great idea either because inflation erodes your savings, Yeah, right? It does both those things. So the incentives are not there to save and the incentives are not there to borrow. And that's what makes it such a confusing time for people. Oh, the only thing I can say is invest in things that will make you and your family more productive uh, down the road, right? That's the only good advice I can give to people during a period of inflation like this. Invest in your own productivity. Go back to school. <laughs> Learn new skills. Because that expenditure will pay dividends uh, after the really rough period is over. Wonderful. So speaking of school, I want to take us to our last topic for the 2022 reflection. And then I want to look ahead a little bit with you, Janice, okay. but chat GPT. So a bot of many trades, CGPT is like a search engine that provides one result combined with a sophisticated chat bot and a blandly unoriginal yet at times eerily human sounding writer. Yeah. It can answer questions, compose text based on prompts and write self-reflective poetry. Uh, this likely isn't a fear for students, but educators are concerned that CGPT's essay writing abilities will negatively impact assignments. So are you concerned, Janice? First of all, have you played with it yet? Yes. Okay, it is. I, I would urge everybody to actually go, and maybe you could put in the podcast instructions for people, right? On yes. how to download it and play with it because it's, what the technology world would call a beta model, which is it's not it's just beginning to really learn. And every time we interact with it, it's learning from us. Um, so when you asked it to write reflective poetry, Sonia, it's learning from you. It's learning from your question. You're helping to train it. It's going to be a lot of poetry about cats. There's going to be a lot of cat poetry out there. Exactly. But I think it is a step level change. This is really astonishing to see what it can do. And what's most astonishing about it, it's a storyteller. It can write, produce narrative text. And it does that because it's trained on millions and hundreds of millions of websites. Am I concerned? No. Will it have dramatic change? Yes. Um, so in a way, this is the metaphor for what's going to um, happen to the creative class in general. Most automation thus far has affected workers. Now, that's not too entirely because search engines have, for instance, changed what lawyers do, right? They no, lawyers no longer search for case presence. So, um, but those are professionals. Up till now, automation has really impacted the workers, industrial workers. Manufacturing. And manufacturing, professions. We're in another world now. <laughs> this is going to impact artists, professors, teachers, writers, 
uh, tweet writers, advertise the advertising industry, what is euphemistically called by Richard Florida, the creative class, right? And this is only the beginning because um, ChatGPT will eventually produce visual images. So think of filmmakers, movie producers, website developers. Photographers. Photographers. Um, so the revolution is finally coming. Uh, to a group of people who thought they were so immune and what they did was so unique that nobody could ever replace anything that they're doing. And it's going to change what we do. Um, so tweet writing um, is really not going to be an employable activity anymore. ChatGPT will just do it. But the bigger picture, um, think about this. ChatGPT is trained on the past. It's trained by looking back, right? So that is the best it can do when it's re and it's really good. But even if it gets really better than it is now, it can produce better writing about the present and the past than almost all but the very best writers. But it can't write about the future because it wasn't trained. It, by definition, can't be trained um, on future websites before those future websites are read. So as somebody said to me this morning, are we at the beginning of the post-human world? And I gave an unequivocal, no, we are not. <laughs> now, that's not to take away. This is really an extraordinary moment. And if people haven't played with it, they should go do it right away. It got, uh, and I think it's had the largest number of downloads in a week of almost any innovation in this last week since it was released. So everybody should play with it. Incredible. So the future is ours, according to yeah. Janice. But looking ahead, Janice, into this year, are there areas of research that you will personally be focusing on in 2023? And if so, can you share a little bit about them with us? You made it better for me because you said 2023 and that's you know a containable period of time um, probably two really one very policy oriented which is i always have an interest in what's happening in the world i'm going to pay a lot of attention to what china is doing both in where it makes its technology investments um, what is working in China, where it manages to succeed, because it will succeed in some areas, given the massive scope of these investments. And why am I really interested? Because China is the second largest economy. It is the first country, big country, Japan led first, but China is the first big society and economy to deal with a falling workforce. How does it deal with that? What can we learn from that? And I think there's, there's, we will learn a huge amount from close attention to China over the next couple of years. The second is more long-term and it goes to a core research interest of mine, which I've had forever, which is I study how people actually make decisions. <laughs> not how they think they make decisions? Not, no, not what models tell them, right? Not, so... You know, economics has spent a lot of time developing rational models for decision making. They're great. The only problem is few people actually behave that way. And so I've already I'm always been interested in how what people actually do. And we need to better understand that if we're going to base strategies 
uh, on expectations of what people will do. We're moving into a wholly new area now, which is AI driven. Um, and so I think one of the profoundly important research questions is how is this, you know, this augmented decision-making, which is where we are anyway for the next few years, which is when AI augments helps people make decisions. People are still making them. Exactly. It's really important to make that point. But AI is a very robust, high fidelity input now to the way that people make decisions. Exactly. Now, how does that change the way they make decisions? So for example, does it eliminate some of the obvious what cognitive psychologists have called biases? Uh, does it introduce other biases? The, the answer is probably yes to both. Uh, so understanding that in a really granular way, and we can do that with experiments in the lab, we can do that by actually studying how people in business make decisions, in government, make they make decisions when they hybrid AI or AI augmented decisions, I think is a really fascinating, fascinating subject to work on. So last question, that's your areas of research. What story are you most excited to follow in 2023? The, the story I'm most optimistic about is those places in the world where people innovate and adapt. So if we take the probably, I think the most the most stunning example of innovation and adaptation we had in 2022 was the Ukrainian army. It's just an astonishing story. And as you take it apart, it's ongoing in front. But it is absolutely astonishing to watch how with relatively scarce resources, right, um, it was a human capacity to adapt to changing conditions in real time, to push out decision-making to people on the ground, to empower people to use technology as they saw appropriate, to share decision-making and intelligence gathering with Ukrainian citizens uh, in the field at times who would be texting in to local unit commanders I just saw two Russian soldiers over there and they're heading this way. And the capacity to aggregate that intelligence in real time, you know, use civilian, adapt civilian technology, drone technology um, to score some of the most important victories in the war. It is an astonishing, astonishing story. Um, and so I have never been a gloom and doom person. <laughs> I'm just always struck by this human capacity to innovate, to adapt, to learn. Uh, and I, here's my optimistic note. I think open, transparent societies just do better at innovating, adapting, and learning. Um, you know, there was some infatuation with autocratic regimes over the last several years. People argue they were more efficient uh, you think back to the early COVID days, right? The story of how China shut down COVID um, in and around Wuhan and the United States had this shambolic performance and so much was written about the advantages that authoritarian governments have. I never bought that line. <laughs> uh, and, and we see how the end of that story was written. But if you live in an environment where you're afraid to make a mistake, where you're afraid to fail, 
where you're afraid if you criticize the person that you report to, you will lose your job, if and much worse. Those societies um, over time do not succeed uh, at innovating, adapting, and learning. So there, I think there is an optimistic story to tell about our own societies, which is a good one. Thank you so much, Janice. This was amazing. You are um, so welcome. You are so welcome. And it's such a pleasure to be with you and your team. Remember, Sonia, patience. <laughs> is a virtue. Is a virtue. Amar and Elizabeth, if I don't see you, happy new year and happy Christmas. And Unfortunately, happy- Elizabeth's our tweet writer. So she's currently <laughs> in doom and gloom land. You can do more than that, though. Okay? <laughs> right now, she you does do more than that. You can do the next thing. I'm not worried about you. <laughs> Thank you, Janice. <laughs> Have a happy new year. Thank you for listening to Connected Intelligence. This episode was produced by me, Elizabeth Chim, because I do indeed do more than just write tweets. Our team also includes Amar Kaur, and our host and executive producer is Sonia Senek. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes this year, please subscribe on whichever platform that you listen to your podcast on and share with your friends and family to help us spread the word. If you would like to learn more about the podcast or contact us, you can visit sonyasenek.com. 